For December 19th, 2022, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 755. All the Christmases roll down toward the two-tongued sea. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier when they are reading the Christmas stories they love and talking to one another, talking uh, amongst themselves. I'm Matt. That's Pete. Hey, Pete, how many hands? <laughs> two-hander, buddy. Two. Two hands. <laughs> Remember when two chains was a thing, and we had uh, just we would we would kind of uh, look for excuses to say two chains. Remember when that was a thing that us and all our I, friends did. I can't remember whether it was 2010 when there were two chains, or whether it was the year two where there were 2010 chains. I'm not sure. <laughs> Peter's made a sophisticated joke <laughs> referencing Dylan Thomas as a child's Christmas in Wales. Which is the subject of our discussion today. Last year we did a Christmas Carol, and I'll tell you, Pete, like the two literary uh, podcasts—I nearly said Pete casts, but the two literary, the two uh, 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 pediary lit casts uh, we did, the two um, ones on uh, short works of literature, one on Gawain and the Green Knight, and the other on. Uh, Christmas Carol um, were some of my favorites last year, and so I tried to to recreate the magic. Uh, you know, what I tried to recreate the magic this year by suggesting that we uh, talk about a, a different Christmas story. And of the ones that we floated, uh, Dylan Thomas's "A Child's Christmas in in Wales" came uh, came to the came to the fore. Um, and and I feel a little, and then I like I socialized the idea, trying to. Uh, you know, trying to drum up excitement so that everyone would come. And what I realized is that Pete is my only friend. Oh, Pete that's is not my true. my only friend. No, it's a busy time of year. Everyone's everyone's very busy pretending to be happy this time of year. And uh, and Dylan Thomas is, uh, is working through his uh, is working through his memories his memories of Christmas. Um, let's let's dive in and talk about uh, a child's Christmas in Wales because I think I think it's rad. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the experience of reading it. I had not been familiar with it other than like little excerpts uh, mm. of it before. So this was my first time. And I read the whole thing online. You can find the text of it online in, in a bunch of places. I, I believe it's passed into the public domain. And also you can find the recording of him, of uh, Mr. Thomas, reading reading this. I, I don't know what to call it. This sh- short prose work. It's not exactly a short story. It's not exactly a poem. It's a short work in prose, uh, in poetical prose. Um, and it has kind of an interesting, it has an interesting publishing history. Uh, he was, uh, well, which we can get into later, but Pete, let me, let me start. Let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. Um, where were you at with Dylan Thomas before this? Are, are you super familiar? Not at all. You know, uh, maybe <laughs> rarely, sometimes, you know, uh, often, uh, do you, uh, experience the work of, of one Dylan Thomas? I have read some Dylan Thomas in the past. Of course, I learned, like so many people, the Villanelle style through Do Not Go Gently Did I Good Night. Right. I'm familiar with who he is in terms of like his struggles in his life as a sort of literary personage, mm. right? As the sort of depressive alcoholic, right? Who died young. Um, and, uh, and so I know all that about him, but I don't, I can't say that I'm conversant in his work. 
I, I definitely can't say that. And I can't even particularly remember which or how many of his things that I've read, other than I definitely hadn't read this one before. And this has endeared me to him in a whole new way. This is a this is a really great. This is a really, really great little piece. I wish there was more stuff like this. This is almost like a proto moth story, but with a but but with a, a poetry more. It's funny to say more of a poetry because that also further brings in the concept of what poetry is and how it, the concept of what poetry is has changed in the intervening years. Uh, but yeah, I guess it feels like a performance somebody would give at a slam. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, and, and that's the sort of contemporary version of this, albeit his style is extremely different than what would be expected in that kind of setting, both with regards to how he treats the subject matter and also with how he considers English as an accented and syllabic language. No, yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love the I love the idea of the Dylan Thomas poetry slam. What like specifically what are the features? One is like a very uh, high density of kind of rhyming words kind of piled on each other. Um, uh, right. Like, uh, that and, and that there will be kind of a rhythm established with a bunch of monosyllabic words where, where it'll be like, you know, I don't know, at, that, cat, mat, dat, you know, that, that like, uh, that there will just be, um, those kind of mo- moments, they're like, they're like drum beats. Uh, another, well, I, I'm sorry, what are the, what are the ones that, that you think? So in the, I've, have you ever done, have you ever done that stuff? Have you ever done slam or taken like storytelling workshops or anything like that? I've never, I, yes, in the context of like acting class, but not in the context of like, of, of real poetry slam. Uh, real poetry slam type stuff. I've never done it. I've only, yeah. I've, I've, I've witnessed it. And what I witnessed was of highly variable quality. Right. Yeah. I took, I took, there was a time where I was thinking I might get into it and I took some workshops and I did it. And he, so this is what I'll say I heard in the workshops and, and how it affected my interpretation that the first step is cataloging observation that in, in this particular form, it is very much – and I'm not saying like observational comedy, more like you want fresh uh, fresh communication of experience. You want – and by fresh, I mean you are looking for elements of experience to discuss uh, that have not been heretofore discussed in the same way that you can bring it, right? So the notion is that it's personal, and I think – a lot of people interpret the task of personal poetry in a, well, in a variety of different ways. I think that with regards to modern open mics and slam and storytelling, there is a sense that the rebellion of the personal against the formal involves a deliberate thumb in the eye of uh, conventional prosody, which it doesn't. Uh, as in like, say a thing that sounds the least like a poem that you can think of, and that itself will be an act of rebellion if you call it a poem. That was true in like, you know, 19, maybe 60, uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, like as in, um, the really good ones are able to harness various sorts of techniques of, of prosody and versification and whatnot in order to put things together. But step one is you want to make a, a, a slam or a story about something. You need a lot of details of things that you noticed or experienced. And those things, once you have them together, you look for unifying concepts, themes, or flows that can connect across these different observations. And then as you do that, you craft and rehearse your performance you build into it 
the uh, the euphony, right? The rhythm, the um, the the aesthetic qualities that it has uh, as a work of writing or of live performance that that they come after the idea that it's about something that you witnessed or were part of. Uh, and I do, I think that there are confessional works of poetry that don't feel that way at all that start with the project of I am writing a poem. It is going to be like X. And then you think about what you want to write about and you put in a bunch of stuff like, Oh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of Wordsworth as somebody who is very experiential in how he writes and how he considers his own poetry, but whose poetry doesn't read like it's being written in this manner, right? Like, it's not like, well, I went to Tintern Abbey, and here are the things that happened to me while I was there, right? Right? Like, like it's not like, you know, I walked up the path and there was a frog, and it was next to another frog that was dead, and the frog just sort of jumped away from the other frog without regarding it with anything, right? Like, no, that's not how Tintern Abbey works. That's not how that kind of poetry works. It's like, there's the church, and there's the graveyard, and here's the sort of picturesque quality of all of it, and like. Like, here's how it made me feel, right? Uh, whereas with Dylan Thomas here, it feels more like modern slam because it's like there's – I was at a house fire and I know what the smoke was like. You know, There was a cigar that was sort of similar to the house fire. That's a, that's a good example, right? So I, I want to dig into a lot of specifics around this poem while we're talking about it. But there are details in his writing that seem to rhyme with each other in, in terms of meaning and symbolism that – would not, I think, have arrived at such if they had not been cataloged at first. You know, things like, you know, the cigar and the smoke of the cigar versus the smoke, the tall men who are firemen in the smoking kitchen versus the uncles, right, who are smoking cigars while the women are carrying tureens, right? There's these like two, there's these two events in this, and we should actually talk about what the poem is about. As they're going to, as as, uh, smoking cigars and kind of like, you know, regarding them in their fingers as though they're going to explode, right? Yes, yes, yes. Was the image. And I thought of, I thought of the, you know, famed uh, assassination attempt or idea for an assassination attempt on Castro, (laughs) you know, the exploding, the exploding cigar, but yeah, absolutely. Or the smoke of the, the kind of the hypothetical two guys, you know, out for a brisk walk in the cold who uh, walk into the sea until nothing is left of them except the um the uh inextinguishable embers of their corn cob pipes or something like that you yes, know? yes 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 L- like there's these little these little details that come from direct observation that that are the foundation of what's going on sorry go ahead go and ahead. then and then like right and and then it's all i mean it's it's all heightened, right? And like, I think one of the heightening, uh, techniques is, is, you know, the kind of the rhythm I identified. You talked about euphony and rhythm. I talked about rhyme like that, that, um, one is, is, you know, a, a sort of, crashing a crashing of figurative language upon figurative language. Uh, Right, like the the tea tray slithered hills that the postman walked down. Well, they're they're tea trays slithered because the the like the kids have been sledding on cafeteria trays, you know, and mm-hmm. they but they're slithered. So it's it's uh the metaphor is of snakes and tea trays don't slither and the children don't slither and so there's this this crashing of of like figure upon figure upon figure of of language. So the the observations are not. Just just like if Ernest Hemingway had written it, it would be the children had been sledding on the hills. Yes. <laughs> the, the impressions of the tea trays they used as primitive sleds left a winding pattern upon the hill. The postman walked along the trails that the children had left on their sleds. 
And it, it would be a completely yeah. different, you know, <laughs> the, it would be the completely... brandy was hot in his throat, <laughs> like his, his shattered kneecap, <laughs> like rattled against his femur. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not, that's like the bull. That's... What would you what would you do if you saw a hippo? I would kill it after an elaborate dance in which we did not know whether hippo or man would survive. Also, I'm anti-Semitic. See, that would be Hemingway. That would be right. Hemingway. <laughs> but but Dylan yeah. Thomas does a whole does a whole other thing. And there's this like just this this kind of delightful um, piling of uh, of metaphor on metaphor. And then mm-hmm. uh, like and I don't know. My uh, obviously uh, owning a hound dog. Like my my favorite was the uh, the. Um, you know, we were out for a walk in the snow and it was snowing and we couldn't see. And then we were, you know, we were travelers, you know, in the frozen north, uh, you know, walking in the north hills. Right. And then and uh, then a, a a big dog came bounding up to us with the, the you know, heavy dewlap and a, a barrel of brandy hung around its neck, uh, bellowing in its uh, howls. Excelsior uh, was, you know, just the most delightful thing uh among among many uh many yeah. delightful things but i've lost the the plot Pete, yeah. i think that that the plot actually is you you have to know a little bit of the publishing history to get into this and this is just my research to this extends to wikipedia and not very far beyond or uh wikipedia and the introduction to the to the recorded version of uh of dylan thomas reading this um, that I heard. So it starts with Dylan Thomas recorded, um, for Wales and then for national broadcast out of London, little bits, little like poetry bits, poems and like, uh, personal essays about the life of a poet, which is apparently a thing that was on the radio in the, yeah. in the, uh, mid century, you know? So, um, he would, uh, he was used to taking what he had written and, Performing it, um, you know, performing it live. Uh, and uh, then separately from that, he on two different occasions had written, um, Christmas sort of Christmas stories, Christmas memory, uh, stories. And one was called like, uh, a child's memories of Christmas in Wales. Um, then he went to the United States and got kind of approached by two women who ran a, uh, like a publishing, uh, outfit that, per- that did, uh, or wanted to get into recordings of poems on, you know, on records, on vinyl records. That'll never work. No one will want to listen to a book. Books are for reading. Right, exactly. <laughs> like they, they cast, yeah, you said the books are for eyes, not for ears. <laughs> Books go in your eye holes, but um, uh, so he re- he recorded uh four or five poems, uh, and for the B side, um, suggested that they do this uh this Christmas memory, which he kind of spontaneously retitled or maybe misremembered, a child's Christmas in Wales, uh, and it had been published earlier in Harper's in the United States, and it had uh included. The earlier A Child's Memories of Christmas in Wales, uh, either smashed together or, or kind of interleaved, interpolated with a different, um, Christmas memory, uh, uh, memory writing. And so when you, when you, uh, read it, 
it's clear, I don't know if it was clear to you, but even before I knew that, it was clear to me that there were kind of two movements, right? Like there's a first movement and a second movement in this. And the the first movement is a kind of like a, a recollection of various scenes. It's like a series of vignettes from Christmases in the past. He, you know, he describes kind of memory or the past like a, a giant snowbank into which you, you plunge your cold hands and you pull out uh, whatever memories come out. And there's, you know, like witnessing a fire at a neighbor's house or, you know, the kinds of presents you used to get. And then there's kind of a second part, which, which goes more or less from morning to evening in, um, in a single Christmas day and like the activities that the families, that the family would do. And, and, you know, part A is a lot more concerned with, um, the first movement is a lot more concerned with like peers and friends and like, uh, you know, friend relationships and, and what the kids would do. And then the second introduces more like the, the uncles and aunts and the, um, you know, the, the domestic life and the kind of the family celebration inside the home, uh, for Christmas, even though they seem to take like seven or eight walks every day day um out in out in christmas and so uh and and so these are these are like recollections from you know a, his childhood growing up in in swansea in wales they are not by any means you know literal or strictly speaking true uh right and they're they're highly heightened they're highly kind of covered by colored by memory um and, uh, you know, and, and by nostalgia. And they're also like the first in the first movement, they're kind of written as a Socratic dialogue with a, like a child interlocutor who's asking about Christmas back then, uh, and, and what it was like. And if it was anything like, um, if it was anything like today, uh, you know, did, did you have snow then? Oh, did we have snow, kid? You think you've seen snow. Our snow was like, and then the, you know, the crashing of, of figurative language on figurative language begins. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, uh, describing, uh, I'm describing it in a, a, a highly idiosyncratic way. Pete, why, why don't I yeah. leave it to you to uh, fill in anything that you feel like I've left out in my description of this short work? Well, I feel like it's a rich work. It's yeah. complicated. And the writing itself is rhythmic and really beautiful and interesting. So that's a big part of it is that it's very short. So if you want to read this thing, go read it. It's you can sit down and do it in one sitting. It's it's for me. It was 16 pages. Uh, so super easy, but dense and beautiful. I would describe this as very similar in certain ways to a Christmas story. The movie the sort of like super early version of a Christmas story. Huh. Right. In that um, you'll put it, your eye out. Yeah, you put your eye out it, that the kid kids do a bunch of things where this is this a bunch of this is from the perspective of the kids left to themselves and the kids have drives that are recognizable from a hostile and unemotionally endowed sort of childhood of the kind that you might expect Dylan Thomas to have where like children wander into burning buildings or like might potentially get in fights with each other or like hit cats with snowballs and stuff and like uh, wander in and out of, of the places where they live. It seems like at will with nobody knowing where they went. Yeah. Like largely benign, like, like 90% benign mischief, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, I would, I did not get a vibe of mischief from it. Although that's how you would describe it. I got more of a, like, 
the kids are encountering stuff and thinking about stuff that's like, you know, can be pretty violent and dark. It's not like the violent, dark things are happening. It's like the things in their mind, right? Like, like the part in the burning building where they're like, oh, something is on fire in the house. Maybe it's the husband, you know, did I read that wrong? Where it's like, maybe the husband is burning alive inside this building, right? And it's like, well, that's because they're children and they are, uh, they're getting used to ideas, but, but it is to an extent. No, yeah, yeah, no, it was like, he fell, he, uh, he fell over, you know, maybe he fell asleep, uh, with his newspaper on, on his face and like, uh, caught on fire or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so this is both a sort of parody of Christmas literature, and also, but that's, I mean, I th- I think it's also like their 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 imaginations are their imaginations are kind of phantasmagoric and extreme, you know, be- because they're children and they don't know what is realistic, you know, yes, right? Like, yes. they and it's not it's not it's a non it's a non malicious, you know what I mean? Kind well, yeah, of it's like not malicious, but it's also not like moppetish. Yeah, exactly. Oh, hundred hundred percent. This yeah. is very different from well, I mean, even Dickens is not actually. Dickensian, right? Like, yeah. but it, it's very different from from what you think of as sort of an idealized Victorian picture of of children or Edwardian picture of children, I guess, as the as the case may be. In uh, in this case, it's not. Um, yeah, they they definitely like they're being actual kids, right? Yes, yes, yes. It it feels. I guess so. The simple thing is this is a this is a famous poet who is a sort of modern poet, very edgy, very dark at times, but very emotional and passionate, kind of complicated, you know, highbrow poet, basically writing a 20-page version of a Christmas story, uh, which feels at times like it's like vibing on James Joyce, right? Or like, uh, or doing doing other sorts of like really dark things. Sometimes it feels like it isn't. Includes a bunch of funny, uh, funny little anecdotes, but also makes a bunch of sort of broad, complicated, ambiguous statements about like history and memory and and reality and, and existence. Um, and it's it's uh, yeah, and it's fun and it's funny, but it's mostly beautiful. And uh, and you can sit it and sit at one sitting. So that, that's that's how I would describe it, I guess. And um, like like the part where. He describes the mailman as Santa Claus without name checking Santa Claus. Yes. That's really the thing that makes this highbrow is like when he's when he's very obviously doing a parody of somebody else describing Santa Claus and he just doesn't call it out. You're just sort of expected to know it. And if you don't know it, then it still works like that's that's what makes it kind of literary. (laughs) It's like uh, is that there's a bunch of layers to this thing that you can dig into and and you can uh, unpack if you want, but you don't necessarily have to. Yeah, it's actually um, yeah. good. Let me let me read a passage about the postman, which I think will yeah. illustrate a lot of things that we've been talking about. Yeah. This is in the first part, and so it there it, it uh, takes the form of a conversation with a uh, you know one one presumes very young interlocutor. Um, were there postmen then too, with sprinkling eyes and wind cherried noses on spread frozen feet? They crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. <laughs> you mean that the, the postman went rat-a-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, 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 in the bat-black snow-white belfries, tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidings over the bandaged town. 
uh, et, et cetera. Let's see. Skipping, skipping. Get back to the postman. Oh, actually, like there's this kind of yeah. like, <laughs> lyrical passage. And then the interlocutor says, get back to the postman. Yeah. I want to hear about the mailman. They, they That's were, how you know that this is about real kids. Because right. the kid's like, I want to hear about the mailman. <laughs> um, uh, they were just ordinary postmen. Uh uh, found of walking, uh, fond of walking and dog. I don't think this transcription that I have on online is great. Uh, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And they stood on the white welcome mat in little uh, drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents after the Christmas box and the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithered run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his icebound boots like a man on fishmonger slab. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot and by god he was gone yeah and that's santa claus right that's yeah 100 percent that's santa claus yeah he has the nose like a cherry yeah right like like oh and putting the finger beside of his nose you know yeah he has a relationship yeah, yeah he has a relationship with jiggling and shaking yeah uh you know he's kind of like he he has this sort of freedom of movement uh, yeah. you know, and, um, and you can't always account for the movement. It doesn't always make sense. Uh, the bell is yeah. like right out of the Polar Express. Right. Or yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. Is. yeah, exactly. hundred percent. The Polar Express is not from before Dylan Thomas, except no. the actual train. Which but is they're like, pretty, they're like pretty. sleigh bells, right? Like they're yeah, they're exactly. So it's like a, a visit from St. Nicholas, right? Is yeah, the, yeah, exactly. you know, is the, probably the intertext here is probably the yep. reference. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the night before Christmas, right? Yeah. 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 So it's yeah. So like so there's intertextual relationships with other Christmas literature, but it's being framed in this notion of memory. Now, I want to ask Matt oh. um, memory in this in this piece. I I had a bit of a life of pie problem with this piece uh-huh. <laughs> in that I read it as darker than I think it probably needs to be read or ought to be read. Oh God. When, but, when is the tiger going to eat the child yeah. <laughs> on Christmas in Wales? Well, I think it was because of all the snow. Right. It's so oh, the image yeah. of the snow and the memories in the snow. Uh, and the risk, the kind of the risk of snow, like the idea, you know, the description of cold does not spare. It's not, you know, uh, it, it doesn't sort of pull its punches. And the idea that like we were lost travelers. Um, oh, let me find it. Uh, now we were snow blind travelers lost on the North Hills and vast dewlapped dogs with flasks around their necks ambled and shambled up to us. There it is. Ambled and shambled up to us baying Excelsior. Oh, <laughs> I, I added the howl. Um, yeah. like, but the idea that like there is a risk to traveling, you could be snow blind travelers. Uh, lost on the on the North Hills, and that's like a real possibility out in the out in the frozen cold. Right. Though though another another way that I saw the snow for me the snow felt the thing that I immediately went to was the dead, uh, like the oh, James yeah. Joyce story where sure. it's like the snow is falling and and all of the people are like under the snow as it's falling and it's all going towards it's sort of like ultimate ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, end of the snowstorm as as it were, um, and this idea of like. What is the substance of Christmas in this imagining? And what it is, is that all the, the line, what the line that, that really sets the tone for me is all the Christmases roll down toward the two tongue to see, 
right? Like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice edge fishing, uh, fish freezing waves. And I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. But when I feel like all rivers go to the sea, what it seems to me is it's sort of like all of our lives are kind of passing and, and things go into the snow. They sort of go, they fade to white, right? Like then the snow piles up and extends and it sort of covers our memories. And, and one of the, Things that then is special about Christmas is because you repeat it a bunch of times and because you associate it with intense feeling and emotion, you're able to grasp at bits and pieces of of memories that used to be full experiences that you were going through in your life and now remains at these sort of fragments. But because it's Christmas, they're all connected to each other and, and you can reach into that and kind of pull out a sort of mentally networked complex of ideas that are associated with what it is for you to be a child at Christmas. And it's not one Christmas. It's like the remaining bits of all of the Christmases that the snow hasn't taken away. Um, I think, I think the other, the other part of it that, that gets to me is um, how he, how he describes the past. He, he, and, and, and I read some interpretations which were like, oh yeah, he's talking about how, you know, people think about the Edwardian age as, as Edwardian era as the good old days. And I'm like, I don't know if that's what he's talking about, right? Like, like when he talks about, uh, uh, when they go back and they, um, not just the, the fur capped moccasin trappers, but when he talks about the wheel, right? Um, the, uh, like, you know, it's not just like, oh, yeah, back before we had TVs. It's like back before the wheel was invented. Back before, yeah, it was, here's, there it is. It goes, um, years ago when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales. So my first thought is like, when were there wolves in Wales? Are we talking about a primordial time before – uh, you know, written history? Are we talking about a sort of pre-Christian druidic forest primeval? Or was there some sort of big wolf extermination project in like 1928? Like, I don't know. But but that idea is already out there, right? Um, the birds are different colors. Okay, so a bunch of birds have gone extinct in the intervening time, right? Okay, that seems like it's something has happened. It's a pretty big deal. Um, sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons. So they're singing in caves, why, why are they in caves? Like, what are we are we talking about the past from the perspective of, of are we talking about the past of our youth from the perspective of a present that's nostalgic for when we are children? Or are we talking about the past of our youth as if we would be talking about, you know, Stonehenge, because it's something that's drifted so far into the past that it's achieved this this mystery and this intensity. But it's also all kind of going to the same place. Uh, right. When we when we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears before them. OK, so that's like that seems to me, OK, we're definitely in like druidic times here because it's not just it's a child's Christmas in Wales, which is like, sure. you know, the, the Celtic part of of uh, the part of England that always <laughs> the Celtic part of southern Great Britain that more or less got along with England for a lot of its history. Right. Sure. Um, then it goes before the motor car. OK, sure. My grandma was before motor cars before the wheel. Wait, what? <laughs> and when it says before the duchess faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, uh, it snowed and snowed. And I'm thinking, OK, there's a duchess faced horse. What does that mean? I don't know uh, what what I took it to me. What I guessed at was like, OK, are we talking about the difference between, you know, the kind of horses that people rode back when horses were first domesticated 
uh, and used his beast of burdens before they've been, you know, bred since, right? That a duchess faced horse has a long face and a sort of noble face because it's been thoroughbred and made enormous. Whereas like old medieval horses and, and earlier were much smaller. Um, and, uh, or is he referring to like blinders and harnesses? And, uh, but just the idea of like riding in the hills bareback, is that something you did because you rode horses as a child? Or is that something that was done by the Welsh back before, you know, they were forced into, you know, uh, you know, post Roman civilization as it were, right. This sort of, uh, uh, this idea of like, we have, we have, we have technologies. We don't just have, uh, we don't just have animals. Um, and this, so this idea of it snowed and it snowed is that there's a, for, to me, it reads in this, that there's an ambiguity between the retreat of your own memory of your own life and the retreat of all memories, uh, which which Christmas provides this like passionate, sublime kind of place to to dig into because it, it is so intense and recognizable in, in and these rituals have made it persist so much. And also it's um, a it's a, a sort of religious festival centered on memory, centered on like retelling a particular story of a thing that happened in a particular time and place, right? That yeah, then yeah. Like kind of kind of keeps that alive. It keeps a memory. It's a it's a festival of a memory, you know. Yeah. And so the other line that gets to me about that connects with this is um you know, once I had a little crocheted nose bag, he's talking about the presence, the useful presence. Uh-huh. When I, and, I, and of course, we want to talk about the presence more probably because it's great, the, the two presence sections. Yep. But when he's talking about the useful presence, he says, we had a little crocheted nose bag from an ant now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. Yep. So this struck me as, OK, we were here before the modern horses. The horses have changed. There used to be this kind of horse. Now there's that kind of horse. We used to ride without saddles. Now people drive cars. The implication is that not only do the horses change and pass with the ages, but eventually all the horses die, right? And so like here, whinnying is the state of us. We are horses in the sense that we are a product of change, but we also will change and people will come after us after we are gone and eventually all the people will be gone. Is that sort of how I read that connection? And I might have been reading a little bit of extra reading and, and importing outside research when I was looking up the Welsh tradition of the horse skeleton at Christmas, which he doesn't directly reference and maybe isn't part of this at all. But apparently there's like a pre-Christian horse skeleton that goes around from house to house in Wales and asks for presents <laughs> and is dressed up in human clothes. So there might be this sort of like uh, horse iconography that's happening comparing sure. I, the young people and old people. I also wonder, I mean, I, uh, yes, yes, absolutely. And I think the implications that, the what you're, what you're describing, um, lives on, uh, I mean, really operates through implication through kind of like, uh, you know, uh, a mood right in, in this yes, whole thing. Yes. I, I also think when, when I think of this kind of literally as, as an utterance and like the sort of utterance an adult might make to a child interlocutor asking about what Christmas was like, um, it's, you know, like, uh, it's like your grandmother saying to you, Oh, I was a girl back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. You know what I mean? Right, that there's, right, right. there's, there's a sort of, there's a kind of comic exaggeration. There's like an ironic exaggeration that, that, uh, you know, goes along with adults telling children stories, stories about the past. I mean, my favorite, the, the, like, the bad trope of this is like, well, back in those days, you wouldn't believe they didn't have television. And so they had to in, 
entertain themselves by trundling a hoop with a stick. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so like soon it will be smartphones. They didn't have phones. What's a phone for? What what is a phone? Phone means sound. It doesn't make sound. It's a video device, Grandma. A phone was something you would make calls on. What's a call? Back before the dinosaurs, we would climb the trees and call to each other from the, from the trees. I'm sorry. This is this explanation is is getting away from me. But I also I also wonder if like. Childhood is a kind of primitive state, right? If there's, you know, if there's a, um, the, like, in a, in a sort of, um, psychological ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, uh, sort of, thing like the 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 development of of a child goes through the development of the human race right and so your 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 early years are your your years as like you know celtic nomads or whatever are your like bronze age years yeah. uh you know and that like um and that there's there's a a comparison being drawn between being young and being kind of primitive and and being primitive means you you have like a, a, an imperfect understanding of how the world around you operates it means you have kind of like animistic uh notions about things being imbued with spirits you know it means that your your lack of technology makes the world maybe a little more dangerous than it would be to modern man to you know modern edwardian man and like that that it's it's the state of of being childish that is the state of like before you were saying like when horses were different and birds were different before you know pre-christian like we we used the job but we used vickers uh the jawbone of of vickers to to chase the english and the bears which is an allusion i think to to samson slaying the philistines with the jawbone of an ass um that the you know that these are these are biblical times these are like bronze age times and it's it's because we were uh it's because we were children uh, even like in the fire the scene where the the neighbor's house catches on fire on christmas that's a fine christmas says the man who uh did not thankfully himself catch on fire um like well we'll call the call the fire department maybe we should call the police oh and let's call our friend timmy he likes fires yeah you know this, <laughs> right yes. there's this like this you know sort of fire worship you know the the the, the Be- beavis and butthead partake in this religion you know that the um well beavis anyway that uh <laughs> that this is this is like a primitive it, that the the kind of the primitive stage of childhood development is like the primitive stage of of uh, uh, civilized of of social development. Yeah, that's so. In, that that's totally so. Did on. There's a lot that's really insightful. I think in this piece about memory and childhood. Yeah. Uh, in that, like, you can find scientific reasons to explain a lot of the patterns of thinking that are in this piece that he could not possibly have known about. You know, like, sure. why do you remember the fire? Why is that the thing that comes to mind? Well, the amygdala is a thing, right? Um, I particularly like the progression of the child interlocutor he's talking to. Yeah. Where even in that section we were just talking about, about, you know, the, uh, the, the riding bareback and the invention of the wheel and stuff. And he's like, we had snow last year. I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down and I knocked my brother down and then we had tea. And, and he says, it's not the same snow. Our snow, right? And he talks about how our snow was bigger snow, which is the sort of like I walked up hill both ways kind of thing. But also like 
the child, it seemed at the beginning of the story, is not able to distinguish between experiences that did not happen to them and their experiences. Like, like we're describing, like, there is a similar idea of a Christmas, of a unitary Christmas that exists in the older person because all of his memories of the Christmases of his youth have kind of drifted into the snow and kind of become mixed with each other. And when he thinks of Christmas because of the way that memories in the mind are networked and associated with each other in various ways and recall works off of association, right? Like he comes up with different memories from different Christmases and kind of mixes them up. And the, the little kid thinks that all Christmases are the same Christmas because he doesn't fully grasp the notion that he's not the only person in the universe mm -hmm. and that there are things that are happening that aren't what's happening to him right now. You know, and it's like over the course of the, the, the piece, you know, he, he describes both situations where it's like, well, your story is wrong because it's not what happened to me. And, and what happened to me is what really happened. And then it moves through this sort of uh, uh, this like, okay, so my Christmas is different from your Christmas. Do you have uncles in your Christmas? Right? Do you have mailmen and postmen in your Christmas? Okay, yours is different. You have your story. I have my story. And then he gets to the point where he talks hypothetically about the hippos and the things that he imagines and that they can imagine together as he's kind of coming up with the idea that like Christmas could be something different than what was experienced potentially. Like there could be hippos uh -huh. or snakes making the making the trails. Um, there's like a whole little child development parable in this whole thing. And it's so, it's so elegantly woven in. Like they don't say like, I was sitting down with my nephew, Jimmy, and we were having a conversation about Christmas and this is how it goes. He just jumps right into it. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's part of what makes it really elegant. And, yeah, and, and it well becomes, thought. I mean, not, it becomes b b kind of accurate by, by being accurately reported and not by yes. being theoretical, you know what I mean? Not by like exactly. having a cheery, a theory of childhood of child development, but like it is, it is personal in, in the way that you were talking about, right? Like not, you know, I don't know, not, not personal in that it is, uh, primarily concerned with the self but personal in the sense that it lets the self be the filter through which the 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 subjectivity right of mm -hmm. of one's own person be the filter through which reality is interpreted and um and described and the way you know yeah and the way that that memory works i i assumed the two-tongued sea which is a bit just a beautiful little phrase right like i assumed that that was because it's like it's a port town isn't it and i assumed there were like two different inlets and and so the kind of the lapping of the water kind of coming into the two different inlets or two different harbors or two different bays or something like that, where the two tongues of the, you know, where the two tongues of the sea kind of, you know, lapping at the sand or the rocks on the, uh, on the shore. But he, you know, the, the, the way you're, you're, he describes it, uh, what you're talking about, the kind of the amalgamation of different Christmas memories over the course of, of, uh, childhood, um, as the wool white bell tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol singing sea. Right. And that, and, uh, and then that's the, the transition. The first, the first one, it's like, I plunge my hands into this ball, this snowball, this like, you know, uh, snowball that has snowballed as it, as it, uh, rolled downhill. All the Christmases roll down toward the two tongued sea, like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice edged fish freezing waves. And I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find, which is not a, a not a terrible way of describing what, um, of describing what trying to remember something is like. Like, I'm sure, you know, we're, we're old enough that we've gotten to the point where, where it's like, wait, 
was it that year? Was that the year I got the Game Boy, right? Or was that the year I got the gun to play Duck Hunt on the Nintendo Entertainment System? You know, that, that like, uh, that, that kind of ambiguity and you kind of like, uh, conflate and you amalgamate and you, you know, you plunge your hands into the snowball and you pull out whatever you can find. That, that, uh, you know, that that's, that's what it is. But the, the, um, I don't know. You, you are, are you, are you assuaged, Pete? Like, is your, is your nervousness, is the life of Pi problem, uh, assuaged here? Or are you still worried that, uh, the, the hippo is going to eat the little boy? <laughs> no, no, I think I'm okay. I do, I do think that the stock, look, look, this is a piece where the commentary on it available on the internet is mostly children asking for help with their homework yes. and people providing children with help for their homework. And as such, the insights are not particularly well-developed. And and there seems to be a, the great Gatsby, the eyeglasses looking at the ash pile, blah, 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 kind of thing, you know, uh, is that this is a poem about innocence. And I did want to touch on that a little bit because to me, it didn't feel very innocent because it felt so on the precipice while I was reading it. And it felt so daunted and daunting and and kind of and also because the kids were acting like real kids in their fascination with violence and fire sure. and and on all this stuff even if terrible things weren't necessarily happening to them like they weren't like i guess what i'm saying is what what is innocence in this context there there is a there is a dawn going down today that is happening uh that the, that happens off screen between these events and the person talking about them, uh, reminiscing about them, where he doesn't live these Christmases anymore. Something changed. A bunch of things changed, and uh, and so in that sense, there's been something that's been lost. Um, but what is it about it that would be innocent? Because I don't think it feels like. Okay, so childhood innocence. I'll posit a couple thoughts. You tell me whether this matches up with you at all, because I have a weird relationship with innocence. Um, just because I tried so hard to be so good for so long. And I don't know if that's something that you did when you were little. Um, and uh, innocence, you don't, you have not done anything seriously wrong. <laughs> and as such, you should not really be blamed for anything that has happened that is all that bad, right? And 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 that's one dimension of innocence and childhood innocence. Um, you, you, you are not capable of making meaningful decisions for yourself. Therefore, you can't even really be blamed for your involvement with systemic wrongs. Uh, not really. Um, you, you, you don't really understand the world. You aren't really fully a part of it because your brain isn't developed enough to participate in it fully in a moral sense and be accountable for it. So that's one dimension of innocence. And then another one is like, you don't know you're mortal, all right? Um, you don't know about loss and grief. Uh, you don't know about heartbreak. You know, you don't know about people leaving you. Um, you think that the people you've accumulated in your memory and your life, your friends and your family members and all those weird folks are, are kind of this ever growing pile of, of like shiny objects and curiosities and, and, and passionate friendships and whatnot, uh, that will just keep growing, right? You don't know what it's like to lose cause you're in, in your innocence. Um, what you, uh, you're always happy. That's not it. But then like, or, or is it or is it also like you are mostly involved with harmless things you aren't really comfortable you aren't really comfortable with or or uh, thinking about like real violence, you know, the sort of stand by me kind of want to go see a dead body is kind of a loss of innocence story kind of vibe, um, you know, that kind of thing uh, um, that that like 
And some of them feel more authentic to real children than others, especially now that I have a, even a two-year-old. You start seeing like, well, of course there's never a point where they're totally uncomfortable with violence. He hits me in the face all the time. <laughs> like he doesn't, he's not strong enough for me to for it to be a real problem, and he doesn't really mean anything by it. He just is exhibiting aggression because he has no self control because his brain is still developing, right? Like, and again, I'm overselling it. He's I learned fine. it. He's I learned fine. it from you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I learned it from hitting you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like you know, I, I don't want people to think that my son is actually like difficultly improbable. No, he's a normal. Violent. He's a, he's yeah. a normal kid, right? Like, yeah, I, yeah. right. And there, yeah, exactly. There's there's no point at which they realize. Oh wait, this has like if I were an adult, this would have like implications that are troubling. Like there's yeah. there's no trouble and there's no yeah. implication. There's like a fantasy series I read once about a bunch of people who lived in like a tree land and I'm trying to remember what it was called, but I can't. But it's like they they come to realize things about violence. They come to realize things about death and they didn't know them before. And before they lived in like this utopia where everything was was kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's called, it's and, called Into the Woods. It's by Stephen yeah. Sondheim. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, well, I'll, I'll continue to Google it. But it's I'll like, go it again. Just, here's some here's some alts for that joke. Yeah. Uh, that's not a story, Pete. Those are the commercials for the Keebler Elves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay, that was that's maybe a way homer. Uh, we we can workshop this a little more as we go. Yeah, uh, but there's but I think there's a bad there's a bad version of a kind of trying to understand childhood innocence or say things are about childhood innocence, which is to say that like you know children children behave in this kind of like idealized with this sort of idealized sweetness, you know, like uh, uh, like um, they're all uh, they're all sweetness and light, all concern for others, all generosity, all uh, you know. Um, Right. Like all like, you know, I don't know, sharing their sharing their candy with the less fortunate. And like if if you've met children, you'll be disabused of this idea <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty rapidly. Like they want their own candy, yeah, you know, they, and they, they, they want, want yours. Own. They want yours as well if they can. Yeah. Uh, if they can get it. And the you know, the innocent part is they, they don't really see the problem with uh, yeah. with that. I mean, Catholicism calls it like the age of reason, which happens around seven or eight when you kind of become capable of, of like having some like moral thoughts or putting together some like moral, uh, moral ideas. And so like the, I guess the good version of like childhood innocence is that you, you kind of can't be blamed as a child because you don't know any better. The, the, like the bad, the kind of the vulgar version of it that like, you know, all the, the high school term paper writers on the internet commenting on child Christmas in Wales. If you go to try to find some, some commentary on the, you know, on, I want to say poem, but on the work, uh, online, you'll find people talking about how it's about, uh, nostalgia and innocence um the innocence of children are like well you know it's childhood sweetness right like it's childhood lack of of malice and it's it's specifically not about that yes they like to they like to throw snowballs at cats these little monsters you know they like to Sorry, go ahead. Chat, Chat GPT says a child's Christmas in Wales is a nostalgically themed story that reflects on the joys and traditions of Christmas from the perspective of a child, which is not entirely not true, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but to say that it's nostalgically themed, like nostalgia comes in for a big interrogation, I think, over yeah. the course of this, even though it's not straightforward or direct. 
Uh, just just to cover off, the books I'm talking about are the Green Sky Trilogy by Zilpha Keatley Snyder, which I liked when I was younger. She also wrote The Egypt Game, if you're at all familiar with her work. So anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Go check it out if you want to uh, come across a very fantastical and unrealistic interpretation of, of children's innocence. But yes, yes, exactly. It's like these, these ideas are not being fully embraced. They're being questioned. As, as is the case that this is being presented, is written as a dialogue. That's maybe one of the other things that this is. This is a platonic dialogue sure. between a grown-up and a child about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, except whereas all the Socratic dialogues are like uh, – are about, you know, establishing – uh, establishing some like concrete truths, right? Like, a, you know, reasoning, reasoning from principles to like a definite proposition, right? Like, uh, this is a, this, is a, in this one, Socrates is a real jerk, you know, yeah. like, so, it's like, okay, does Christmas mean this? It's like, well, no, I mean, like, Christmas doesn't mean that. Also, like, your idea of meaning, uh, is, is kind of dumb. And, uh, if other, if, if even if anything could mean anything, Christmas probably couldn't uh mean in in the way that other things mean or make make meaning so were there was was there snow well i mean you know first of all we got to talk about what we understand when we say when we say snow because like your snow is stupid kid (laughs) you know like so socrates it's like a real real passive aggressive socrates yes 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 it is yeah and then they get or or it goes the other way and the only questions socrates asks are like uh you know like what if it was a hippo (laughs) what oh no that's not true what about my brother my brother did it a different way (laughs) like (laughs) but yeah um it's uh it's great. I mean, I, I I can't recommend this piece enough. This is this was just such a wonderful little joy to uncover, um, because it also doesn't it doesn't comment on itself in very heavy handed ways either. There's no like epilogue that explains what it means. Yeah, it, sure. It's definitely given to you as a as an experience. Um, you know, a sort yeah, of I, I fantastical. Love I love that as well. And like to do a little, to do a little high school essay writing, like we can compare and contrast with, uh, with Dickens, you know, and Dickens is concerned with like, Dickens is concerned with a, a number of things. One is the reestablishment of the gold standard. Oh, sorry. No, different work of children's literature. Um, the, uh, like Dickens is, is concerned with, uh, a lot of things, some of them apparent, some of them maybe less so, right? Like the, the, uh, domestication of, of Christmas, which was kind of a larger cultural project at the time, um, from a, like a, uh, you know, drunken, brawling wassailers, you know, uh, harassing you <laughs> until you fill their bowl with booze, till you fill their punch bowl to the, to the, you know, kind of, um, courier and Ives, uh, style Christmas images that, that we think of now. But like, but but more uh, overtly than that, like the is concerned with like teaching a moral lesson about sort of what is important about like, uh, you know, how, how charity and how like, you know, the comedy of man, how fellow feeling that these, these are more important than the, than the accumulation of, of wealth. And that like, it's it's a little bit heavy handed, would you say? It's a little the chain, the chain forged in life that holds you down in death with your your lockbox and your ledgers and your you know uh, uh, silver you know whatever bang stuff all the stuff on Marley's chain right like it's a uh, it's a little heavy it's a little heavy chained whereas this is not. 
it, one of the the kind of really refreshing things about it is it doesn't seem to be out to convince you of anything. Uh, mm. And it doesn't, you know, and it doesn't seem to be out to like teach you anything or say what, say what, what uh, Christmas is about, except that like, you know, except that like when you're a kid, the world is just bigger and it's more mysterious. And the things that happen to you take on this kind of heightened reality because they're the things that happen to you and because, uh, because you're a kid. And as you get older, you can't, you know, as you get older, that, that evaporates, that goes away. And that's not bad. Like it's just what happens. Um, and, and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, um, super eager to like grasp back at that, that childlike, you know, that childlike, whatever the, those childlike experiences, because they weren't all that. They weren't all that. You know, like yeah. they were scary and kind of threatening. And there was a, you know, there was a sense in which the adults were all, you know, maybe a little inscrutable and not necessarily all super safe with their exploding cigars and whatever. Um, and the, the rum, the rum in their teacups, like all that stuff is, uh, is, you know, a little rough. And, and, and like that's, so it, it manages to kind of, I think, say something true about, about human experience without necessarily having a program, um, that it, that, you know, it wants you to, uh, that wants you to adopt. It does, it is not super thirsty to have you sign up for its newsletter, this, yes. uh, this particular thing. <laughs> Where, whereas Dickens is just like really, really wants, uh, wants you to I subscribe. Mean, literally a newsletter. Like you subscribe to, you serialize it. He wants you to buy the next issue of it that comes out. Like the, the <laughs> like the, like the, the, Two gentlemen collecting for charity at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of Christmas Carol, you know, knocking on your door, trying to uh, trying to make it, um, you know, trying to to get you to to donate something. I don't know. Does that? Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, as as we sort of as we sort of wrap up, what what are you what are you left with, uh, Pete? Beyond uh, beyond uh, recommending uh, recommending this, commending it to people, which I as well do wholeheartedly. I think that it has a correspondent relationship with truth that this is there's a lot of ambiguity in this because it's so close to poetry. And one of the ambiguities is that it is fantastical and the the things that are being described are sometimes might be thought of as magical realist or have other sorts of, you know, surrealism um, or just very obviously, you know, somebody misremembering or misidentifying what's happening or jokes. But it has a true that truth value in the sense that it corresponds to a true experience of a repeated holiday of this sort. Like there's, there's definitely something about this that feels phenomenologically true. Right. Uh, which is sort of a contradiction in terms, I guess, but maybe not. Let's, no, let's, not it's really. Poetry, it's, so it could be a contradiction. Exactly. Terms, right? Well, a, a sure, okay, yeah. and B, like it, it's an object lesson in in ways of producing truth that are available to literature, that are available to like representative art forms that are not uh, available to expository prose. You know mm-hmm. that like um, and and that like the 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 kinds of truth, the kind of the the mechanisms for producing truth uh, are different. And the kinds of truths produced might be of different, you know, different sorts, uh, different kinds, uh, categories of truths than, uh, than you would get in expository prose, but they're not less true for all mm-hmm. of that, you know, and that, that's a, you know, a good thing to, to recognize and to, 
uh, and to, to end on. I mean, we joked right before this, Pete, like that, um, but looking at the uh looking at the essays online the kind of the the bad high school essays book reports that we found online about this when we were looking for commentary and and man like it's it's interesting i think it's it's a really bad development for culture that you know literary commentary has become a a, a professional activity of the academy almost solely you know but um but that like and you mean that even like people writing papers for school even not not just like a professor. Are you saying like that it's been professionalized by the professorial class or that everybody whenever anybody is saying anything about a book that they read, they're doing it because school is making them do it? Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's that is uh, that is also bad. I you know, I I just think of like, I don't know, I think of like non non academics writing commentaries on literature and it seems to be something that that has largely you know largely vanished from from culture that that said like i you know i don't know i subscribe to the london review of books and like i read the the new york review sometimes or the times literary supplement like i guess i read i i read these things um so it's it gives lie to it gives lie to my own thing but it 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 does seem like you know when you are when you're searching for uh when you're searching i would i would have loved to hear what what oscar wilde you know what i mean or someone like mm. oscar wilde would have had to say uh would have had to say about this you know who used to just write you know book reviews in the in the newspaper and it it seems yeah. like it's become this this marginal activity and by and and then like the sad thing is that by making children write insipid you know book reports about great works of literature we are sort of teaching them to hate you know <laughs> to hate literature and value you know to to focus on and i guess by extension value what is trivial and stupid in the literature uh and not what is actually like uh magnificent um in the uh in the literature i'm sorry but i probably took it too far what we should do is record an episode of a podcast where we as non-academics talk about a work of literature that we respect and think is like pretty highbrow and interesting oh good i could use it as my thesis project for my (laughs) mf (laughs) of course i'm talking about a muppet christmas carol (laughs) no we did that last time we are uh, uh, we're going to leave it there. This was this was a delight, and Christmas lit cast twenty tw- Christmas list cast was lit, uh, yeah. <laughs> or Christmas is lit cast. We'll workshop the 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 title of the series and come back. We'll uh, we'll uh, we'll come back next year. Uh, happy for suggestions on some some Christmas literature. I know Truman Capote. I think wrote a either a memoir or a short story or something that is sort of similar to this, sort of his his version of this. Um, so. Uh, uh, that's good. We are, uh, man, we are neck deep in some Christmas music for the, uh, the Christmas music challenge. Uh, we ended up, um, with a lot of Christmas records to get through. So we'll, uh, we'll probably not do those, uh, next week for the, uh, next podcast. But, um, you know, uh, uh, stay tuned because we have a, you know, probably hopefully a, uh, lighter workload, all of us between Christmas and New Year's and can, can put together the, the results, uh, of that. Though I, I, I will say the overthinking community, uh, the final tally is not done, but the overthinking community can be, uh, really proud of how, uh, they have rallied, how we have rallied to, uh, you know, uh, give some funds to music and schools, uh, a charity that provides 
provides instruments, directly provides instruments to kids um, learning to play. So uh, we're, we're working on that. Um, in the meantime, we'll be back uh, for Christmas, Christmas cast 2022 yes. uh, next week. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. By the way, the the my um, Ernest Hemingway uh, comparison there wasn't entirely original. In 1927, James Thurber published a story in the New Yorker called "A Visit from Saint Nicholas in the Ernest Hemingway Manner," in which uh, he translates "The Night Before Christmas" into uh, how, how it would have been written if Ernest Hemingway uh, had written it. Um, I'll, I'll read some passages from it. It was the night before Christmas. The house was very quiet. No creatures were stirring in the house. There weren't even any mice stirring. The stockings had been hung carefully by the chimney. The children hoped that St. Nicholas would come and fill them. Mama wore a kerchief. I had my cap on. (laughs) I could hear the children moving. We didn't move. We wanted the children to think we were asleep. (laughs) Father! The children said. There was no answer. He's there, all right, they thought. Father, they said. They banged on their beds. What do you want? I asked. We have visions of sugar plums, the children (laughs) said. (laughs) I'll put a link in the show notes. It's delightful. Wonderful.